Can you dig it? With a Bobcat Compact Excavator, you can. Up to $6,000 in rebates on select models and 0% financing for 36 months. Check us out at Bobcat of Charleston in North Charleston. This episode of the Duke Basketball Report podcast is brought to you by the fine gentlemen of Bird Campbell. With offices in Florida and Texas, Bird Campbell is your Duke-centric law firm, and they mean business. Duke fans, hello and welcome to episode 131 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We are entering the busy time of the year when Duke basketball and Duke football have games. So naturally, we're going to cover as much of it as we can. We will recap the first two exhibition games that Duke basketball had this week, recap that stupid loss that Duke football had at Pitt, and we will preview Duke football's trip to the 305 this week, coming weekend to play Miami. Before all that, I am Donald Wine. I'm driving the funny car this week. From my home here in our nation's capital, I got my two homies with me as well. First off in Durham, Sam Klein. Sam, what's up? It is great to be back in Durham. I was—I told you guys I was on fall break last week. So I was in Denver for a few days. I was actually in Chicago for a few days. But I'm back as of yesterday and ready to get basketball season started. I'll also note for the purposes of doing the show that I wasn't able to see the Virginia Union game. But I was... I was in attendance for Ferris State, and I got to see the end of the football game, so I'll be able to comment at least enough on, as you say, Donald, the, the stupid loss. And and I, I got to see some Zion Williamson dunks live in person this week, so that that really you know filled up my cup, if you will. Good. Uh, I can't wait to hear about that. But uh, also in the in the in the house uh, on the podcast, we have the resident ATLE and Jason Evans. Jason, what's up? I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. That Sam gets to watch Zion Williamson dunk in person. Oh, I, I gotta get. I gotta get to a game. A couple games one day, this year. One day I gotta this, get there. One day this game this year we're gonna get there. Yep. Um, but you know what? Let's start with the basketball. As mentioned, Duke basketball had their two exhibition games of the preseason this past week. On Tuesday, they took on the Virginia Union Panthers and they beat them one hundred six to sixty four. And then yesterday, they hosted the Ferris State Bulldogs from Big Rapids, Michigan and absolutely ended them. Uh, the final score there, 132-48. to 48. Uh, We're going to talk about these two exhibition games. Let's talk about them together. So I'm going to start with you, Jason. Give me your thoughts on what you saw from Duke in one game, the other game, or both games. Yeah, so I watched both games. And by the way, folks, I, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to take a quick history lesson because Duke did the le- same thing last year. We played two exhibition games against Division II schools, um, and you may recall, Duke won the first one 93 to 60. They won by 33 points. They won the second game 116 to 53. They won by 63 points. So this year, we win by 42 in the first game, by 84. Oh my God. By 84 points the second game. So in terms of comparing exhibitions, we're a little bit better this year than we were last year. But that should tell you how freaking meaningless these exhibition games are in terms of really understanding and learning things. And I want to start with Marquise Bolden. Marquise Bolden got the start in both of these games, both these exhibition games this year. Um, And especially in the second game, the game against Ferris State, folks were a little bit like, wow, look at what Marquise is doing. Because he he stepped outside, he hit a three-pointer. And by the way, 
looked pretty good shooting it. I mean, nice form. Yeah. I mean, Coach K said he needs a lot of time to get it off, but I don't think he's going to be guarded out there all that much. I think on the, you know, on the high pick and roll, if he steps back off a pick, his man's not going to follow him. He's going to be going to the basket to stop RJ and Zion and Cam from getting to the hoop. So Marquise may have a lot of time out there to set up that three-point shot, and it looked pretty good. But he had 15 points and six rebounds in the second game. And I know folks may be saying, this this shows. This is, this is it. Marquise is ready to be a big-time factor for Duke. Well, I want to remind you a year ago, in the second exhibition, Marquise Bolden had 13 points and eight rebounds. And every one of us, we swore up and down, he's going to be a factor. He's going to be a big-time player for Duke this year. And it just didn't work out for him. Um, so I, I want to kind of kind of slow our roll just a, a little tiny bit <laughs> on, on at least some of the things we get from these, from these games. But I will say this, two major observations that I have from these two games. One is I, I think that this is actually going to be a, a decent defensive team. Uh, we've seen Duke with, in the one-and-done era really struggle on defense. Um, uh, you know, last year we had to play zone a lot of the time. Now we did a pretty good job of playing zone, but we had to play zone because we, we didn't have guys who were capable of communicating and playing man to man. Two years ago, we were really dreadful on defense the year before that you get back into Jabari Parker's era. I mean, like we've had some bad defensive freshmen at Duke in recent years. What I saw in these two games was a team that is really, really long and looks like when they put their mind to it, which they didn't in the first half against Virginia Union, but when they put their mind to it, this is a team that is capable of playing good man-to-man defense. And it all starts with Trey Jones, who I was very, very impressed with. His ball pressure, he's not going to score a lot. Let's be clear about that. Um, but his ball pressure, I think, is is really impressive. It causes other teams to have to set up their offense further out than they want to, and and he's a pest, and he's pesky. And I actually think he looks to me, admittedly, it's just exhibitions, I think he looks like he's a better defender even than his brother was. Um, he's going to be, I think, the best defensive point guard we've seen at Duke in several seasons. That's a really big deal. And that's why we're going to be able to play good man-to-man defense, I think. I saw these guys communicating pretty well as well. So I said I had two things. The second thing is these guys are going to push the pace. I, I don't, I'm not sure I've ever seen a Duke team that moved as quickly from getting a rebound, getting a turnover, even a made basket, to getting the ball to half court and then into the front court and then toward the basket. Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett especially run the floor phenomenally well. And part of them running the floor is we get that ball to them in the open court really, really quickly. They And they are, I mean, let's just be clear about something. When Zion and R.J. are taking the ball to the basket against you, you're done. Forget it. They're going to score. They are ridiculously great athletes finishing on the break. And it feels to me, I mean, Sam, I'll go to you. Let me ask you. feels to me like maybe this is a team that's going to run more than any Duke team we've seen in quite a while. Yeah, the challenge, I think, for them is, as you pointed out, they're definitely going to run. But the the challenge for them, I think, is going to be the ball movement. Both Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett primarily like to bring the ball inside. And so if they are... If they are as ball dominant, I think, as they're capable of being, then they're going to want to move it in. And and I'm worried that once Duke finally gets to play 
teams with actual size, like they're going to very soon against Kentucky and then probably against Gonzaga a couple weeks later, that those guys aren't going to have as much room to move inside and they're going to need to spread the offense around a little more, be a little bit more creative with ball movement so that they don't get hung up and uh, you know on, on offense and get to play at that speed they want to. I, I haven't seen yet that the that the offensive execution is as creative as as I think we're going to want it to be later in the season. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I completely agree with you. Uh, it, it, as I said at the start, it's it's so hard to tell against you know this competition versus the competition we're going to see later on down the road. But the 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 one thing I will say is, uh, you know, the concern about us playing teams with size. Neither of these teams were that small. They weren't tiny. It wasn't like they had guys who were 6'3 and 6'4 guarding Zion Williamson. And, and I'll tell you, seeing as I brought his name up, I, I was so impressed with Zion's body control in the lane, his ability to, to finish with either hand. Um, it's not just that he's physically huge. It's not just that he can jump through the roof. He seems to have incredible feel for the game and body control when he's going up with a shot. Um, I, it feels to me like his game is more advanced than just being a physical beast. And we okay. saw that we saw that in Canada where he he really yes. looked like a, a big ballerina out there. And that that's that's fully a compliment to Zion for being as you said more complete than we expected. I I was impressed with um like you talked a little bit about the defense. I liked Duke's defensive pressure, especially on Saturday. I liked seeing that guys were recovering. I still think there's room for improvement in in the communication on defense that'll get better throughout the season they'll just get to play more with each other but i wanted to bring donald in and find out you know sort of what he saw and then and then come back to me and i'll kind of give you the the view from inside cameron indoor well just a few points from me i mean the first thing i'm going to talk about i it was weird because the first game the virginia union game uh, i was watching it on a bit of a delay and uh what my friends were telling me was that our defense was terrible and I'm thinking, what is going on? Like, what, what's the score? Uh, and I obviously didn't. I didn't watch. Uh, uh, I knew what the score was when I was watching it. Uh, so when I looked at the final score, and I'm like, what are they talking about? The defense was in a way shaky. Um, obviously, it was, the tra- it was the transition defense. Our transition defense, especially against Virginia Union, our transition defense was just awful. But it, but it was good against Ferris State. So I think it was just a matter of Kay said to them, guys, guess what? When you make a basket, you can't celebrate. You have to get back and make sure that the other team doesn't score a bucket. And well, they did <laughs> set up the they did set up the pressure zone a couple times against Ferris State, like they they were a little bit more aware of themselves. Right. Well, I was going to say that that the defense was shaky, and but it's really about them learning how to play. We're 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 talking about a team that has played, you know, that first game. It was the first, you know you know, team that they had really played since fall practice has started the communication, the spacing, the switches going for steals and rotating off of that. When someone, you know, goes for a steal and misses that's stuff that's easily, you know, fixable and that they're going to get better at as the season goes on. I, I was not expecting them to, you know, allow Virginia Union to score like four points in a game. Um, they tried to do that against Ferris state. They almost succeeded in the first half. I mean, they only gave up 16 points. Um, in the first half. So that sort of defense is going to take time. And and with this young group, I'm okay with it taking a little bit of time. Obviously the schedule doesn't allow for that to happen because we have Kentucky coming up on November 6th, but 
I, I think when you're looking at what we hear shaky, I mean, people were even today, people were saying, wow, Duke just didn't play well against Virginia Union. And that's not the case. I just think that there was a couple of things that needed to be worked out. They, I think for the most part, they did that a lot better against Ferris State. One thing I will say is clicking right now is our ball distribution. You talked about how Trey Jones is really leading the offense and, and really uh, assisting on a lot of shots. Well, assists were coming from everywhere. You know, against Virginia Union, we had 30 assists on 40 made shots. Against Ferris State, we had 26 assists on 44 made shots. That's that's a great stat. You want to see the guys moving the ball around, getting people involved, fighting open men. And you know what? A lot of them are very entertaining. As as I'm sure Sam will tell you in just a minute, a lot of those were like alley-oops and, and finding the open man on transition for a dunk. Um Finding, you know, being unselfish with passing to the open guy for a, for a wide open three pointer. Those sort of get things are are not only going to be crucial for our success. It's going to be crucial for the destruction of the morale of the other team. Because when you have a guy, when you have guys passing the ball all around, everyone's getting involved. Everyone's making shots, making dunks, and transition, being unselfish. That leads to momentum that is demoralizing for an opponent. And I think that is what is going to take uh, Duke, you know, people who play Duke out of the games very quickly if they can do that very well. So I was very pleased to see that so far this preseason. Hopefully they can do that again against Kentucky. Uh, Sam, you were talking about being in the stadium. I want to see, I want to talk to you one with, with one question. How high did <laughs> how high did Zaya jump on that one dunk? That I, I'm pretty sure he's still jumping right now. Uh, that transition where he where he stole the ball at the top of the top of the uh, uh, backcourt and literally seemed like he flew from there to the rim, like like uh, like he was in Space Jam. The I thought thing, he was gonna rip. I thought he was gonna rip the net. It went through so hard. I really thought the net was gonna rip. The thing about Zion is that it looks like he floats up there. I I, I saw this during countdown and then and then again on Saturday. It's like he gets up in the air and then he just kind of stays there. That's what's so scary about the way that he gets to the rim and and the way that he dunks. Like I, my reaction to a lot of, of the dunking on Saturday was, was more like, like speechless amazement than cheering. It was like, it was so incredible that I couldn't get up and, and scream for it. That was, that was what was so remarkable about, about watching this team. I will say that the the crazies were try. I think they were. They're still learning, right? A lot of the students, people know who who have been there before. A lot of the students who go to the games are are freshmen, or in the case of grad students, maybe it's just their first year in graduate school, or they're not as refined in it. But in any event, the the crazies take a little bit of time to get into what you would call midseason form on the cheering. The one thing that was great on Saturday is that one of the Ferris State players had an air ball early in the game, and basically every time he touched the ball thereafter, they did the air ball chant at him, which was which was impressive just to keep track of of who it was. So I, I'm not even sure that I could have done that if I was in charge of, of the student cheering, but that was cool. The, the, so the crazies are working on it. The thing that that I also wanted to highlight going back and talking about the defense. RJ Barrett had a few defensive possessions on Saturday where he was guarding point or or guarding around the top of the key. And it kind of reminded me of LeBron James a few years ago. Do you guys remember when uh, LeBron was, I'm pretty sure he was still on the Cavs, but he was playing against Derek Rose at the height of his powers on, on the Bulls. 
and and the way that the Cavs ended up beating the Bulls in the series was by sticking LeBron on on Derrick Rose to to guard point. That kind I remember of remember that. Yeah, I, I remember had, that. I had flashbacks to that when RJ was guarding at the top of the key the other day and thinking to myself, wow, if he's that good of an on-ball defender that Coach K wants him taking that primary defensive position, then he must be a really damn good defender. And and that, that's a that's a great sign, I think, for this team because, Jason, as you pointed out, it's not like Trey Jones isn't a good on-ball defender. It seems like he sort of has the basic tool set that I think we really thought we were going to see last year from Trevon Duval. And so if RJ is better than that, uh, the, you know, playing – say it's out of position for a guy who's notionally like a small forward, maybe a power forward in college for him to be playing out of position like that on defense, playing up a position is, uh, is, is pretty remarkable. And, and I'd like to see that continue to develop for him, especially since we know that he's going to be a top pick in the draft. And if he comes with, with on ball defensive proficiency, that makes him an even scarier player than he already is. Oh yeah! Oh god, the the notion of an even scarier RJ is like, you know, how is that even possible? The way no, he, he played, the way he played the other day. He played against Ferris State, like Ferris State owed him money, and he <laughs> was collecting shot after shot after shot. It was the it was way awesome. that the way that he's able to so effortlessly get the ball in the basket. It, it's like. Uh, I think it's better than than what it was like for Jabari Parker a few years ago. Jabari Parker, I thought, of all these guys that have come through the program recently, I thought Jabari Parker had the most natural ability to sort of just take the ball and score just whenever he felt like it. R.J. Barrett scores 25, 30 points a game, and most of them are totally nondescript. That's what's so incredible about it, mm-hmm. is that he he's so polished offensively that it doesn't seem like he's working that hard to get the ball in the basket. Well, and you just you led into the last thing I wanted to say about all this. Um, you you have set me up perfectly because one of the key things to look at in these exhibition games is three point field goal percentage and who's taking threes. Because no matter who you're playing, if you get a three pointer, you know whether or not you can hit it doesn't really change tremendously. Based on the defense. I mean, yes, if they're better defenders, if they close out a little bit quicker, I get it, I get it, I get it. But um, for the most part, I feel like, you know, you either show that you can hit threes against any competition or you don't. Um, And I was incredibly thrilled because three-point shooting is supposed to be the weakness of this team. Well, if it's the weakness of this team, we're in really good shape because we hit 42% of our threes against Virginia Union and 50% of our threes against Ferris State. and the most remarkable thing was the book on RJ Barrett was this dude is incredible in the mid range game. He's incredible close to the bucket. He has an incredible first step to get to the bucket, but he can't shoot from the outside. Oh, excuse me. Maybe the book on him was wrong because the word we were getting from practice was that RJ Barrett had spent all summer working on his three point shot. And what we saw in these two games was RJ Barrett taking seven, three pointers in each game. He hit three in the first game and he hit, four in the second game if he's gonna hit seven out of 14 three-pointers if he's gonna come anywhere close to 50 percent on three-pointers he, he's gonna win national player of the year he's gonna be the number one pick in the nba draft and the duke blue devils are gonna be an unbelievably difficult team to stop from scoring so th- to me that was one of the most significant developments that we saw in these exhibition games and uh, you know it was it was a ton of fun to watch it and i can't wait for the real thing to start 
Can it be tomorrow? Please, I just want the real games to start. Look, if I was getting ready to go back to school and wanted to get the best possible score to get into a place like Duke, I would have wanted an excellent prep course like Dominate Test Prep. Founded by Duke alum Brett Etheridge, Dominate Test Prep provides online courses for the GMAT and GRE that are flexible, affordable, and most importantly, proven. If you or someone you know is looking to get into a top school, let a guy who bleeds Duke Blue give you the edge. You can learn more at DominateTestPrep.com and use the coupon GODEVILS to save 10% off any course package. Now we turn our attention to football. And yesterday, Duke fans needed two TV screens because as Duke basketball was playing Ferris State, Duke football was in Pittsburgh to take on the Pitt Panthers. And while they led in the whole throughout most of the game in a shootout with, quite frankly, terrible defense all around, in the end, they let Pitt come from behind and win a stupid game, the final score, 54-45. to 45. Why 54? Because we threw the ball out of the end zone in the last play of the game to create safety. Duke is now 5-3 and three on the season. They're still searching for that elusive sixth win. Sam, I'm going to kick it to you with this question. Last week, it was the offense and the special teams that was the issue. This week, the question now is, what the hell happened with our defense? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. And I, I, I'm, I'm basically at a loss because Duke had an identity earlier in the season, even I guess until now, of being fairly competent on defense. I know that last week there were a lot of there were a lot of missed tackles, but generally speaking, it seems like the defensive foundation has been good for the Blue Devils. Against Pittsburgh, it was it was all gone. There were there was rushes all over the place. The the, the defense couldn't keep anything in front of them. And this has honestly been the story for Duke against Pitt the last few years. It's like Pitt knows exactly how to avoid Duke defenders, how to, how to slip coverages, how to slip tackles. And every game against Pitt ends up being this crazy shootout. So somehow Pittsburgh also has a terrible defense against us when other teams don't have this same problem. So I'm, I'm, I know that injuries have, have hurt this defensive unit. I know that, um, that the team might be getting demoralized about, about losing to some of these, some of these teams. But prior to, prior to this game, Duke's road performances on defense have been pretty strong. And, and against Pittsburgh, it was totally flat. They, they, they were, um, they were all over the place and, and Duke couldn't do anything to contain them. And at the end of the game, when, when things were, when things were tight and important and Duke had to make, had to make stops, it's like, it's like pitches ran right through them and, and Duke couldn't answer on that final drive when all they needed to do was march down the field, call timeouts and kick a field goal. And, and Duke couldn't, couldn't even manage that. It was like Pittsburgh tightened up the defense right at the right time. And, and Duke didn't, that was, that was the whole game. I mean, Duke made, Duke made a bunch of offensive mistakes in the first half that, that I'm sure they'd like back, but, but at the end it was Duke has a chance to win. They didn't capitalize. Pitt did. And the thing that was most surprising was the way they ran all over us. Four, eight, four, 484 yards rushing. And and by the way, they did that on 52 carries. They averaged more than nine yards per carry. Think about that for a second. They averaged more than nine yards per carry? 
I mean, like if a team averages five yards per carry, then you're like, oh man, we're in trouble. Nine yards per carry. They literally did nothing but hand the ball off and just either either Allison would run over us or Valik Carter would run around us. By the way, Valik Carter, this was his first game in a college uniform. I'm not sure if he was injured or suspended or who knows what. He's a freshman. This was his first game. He didn't play in Pitt's first few games. He's a he's a cornerback. He was recruited in the defensive backfield. He he wasn't even a running back in high school. And he ran for 137 yards against us. Oh my god. I I, I don't think I've seen Duke be this bad at stopping the rush. I can't I ever. Uh, it was it was unreal. Uh, and for it to happen on a day when uh, Daniel Jones was absolutely stunningly good, almost threw for 400 yards, four touchdown passes. At one point, I think he completed 11 passes in a row. I mean, Jones was fabulous on this game. Um, and it seemed like, I actually think part of the story of the game was that we scored too quickly. Jo- we, would, we were getting these, you know, 50, 60-yard pass plays, 70-yard um, pass plays even, and um, for touchdowns. And we, especially in the third quarter, we were scoring so quickly that our defense wasn't off the field for very long. And they kept on having to go back on the field and, and watch the Pitt Panthers roll out another one of these, you know, eight play drives where it was eight plays of them running the ball down our throats until they put it in the end zone. And, and I think it wore us down, but it was, that's, it's just such a frustrating loss to play that well on offense and lose that game. We had 600 yards. We had 600 yards of offense. 223 on the ground, 396 in the air. 600 yards of offense. Deion Jackson runs for 162 yards, and we lost. Deion wow. Jackson. Deion Jackson set. What, what was it? He set the the Duke record the other day for yeah yards from scrimmage. Yeah. yeah, yeah, unbelievable. And Duke still he was everything he touched went it seemed for like 40 yards at least because he he was great like you said he was great on the ground um you know he averaged 16 yards a carry and <laughs> he had three catches for 89 yards and a touchdown including that, se- that 74 yard touchdown it was the longest of the day he had plays of 50 yards 60 yards and 74 yards and then that's not counting special teams where he really just destroyed anytime he decided to run a ball back he was getting out to the 40 50 yard line every single time he had a tremendous game it should i mean i'm glad that you mentioned him because i you have to you have to yeah you know, really shout his name from the rooftops as someone who had what would you would think would be a player of the week uh in the ACC type of performance and it was all for not because the defense was just let you know open the door and letting Pitt walk right in All right, enough with stupid losses. Uh, Up next for Duke football is a trip to Miami to take on the Hurricanes this weekend. Miami is coming off two straight losses as well. They they have lost to UVA and Boston College and are now likely out of the Coastal Division race, but it is their homecoming, and they're going to want to get back on the right track this weekend. For the Blue Devils, two straight losses to UVA and Pitt, and they're looking for that sixth win to become bowl eligible. Of course, all of you guys out there know I am a graduate of the University of Miami, School of Law. I am known as the Miami expert around here. 
But for this preview, I thought it'd be interesting to see what my co-hosts think of the Hurricanes and what it will take for Duke to beat them in the 305. So, Sam, I'm going to start with you. Give me your key to victory for the Blue Devils. Keep that that opponent's rushing number under five, at least. I think that Duke's defense is the is the unit that has struggled the most recently. And I want to see them contain Miami's uh, offensive attack to a lot less than, than what they've been doing uh, in recent weeks against the likes of Pittsburgh and Virginia. Um, if Duke is still allowing six, seven yards a carry, then they've got no chance to beat Miami and no chance, frankly, to beat any of the other opponents that are left on their schedule. They haven't been as opportunistic on defense as as we saw in weeks past, I think that Duke the last few years has been successful running a bit more of a bend don't break attitude against, especially against these better opponents, these more athletic opponents and, and have no doubt that Miami is bringing better athletes uh, to this game than Duke is. That's just kind of the reality of recruiting in the ACC. Duke can still Duke, Duke has, has alleviated that by, by creating turnovers the turnover margin is not as good now as as it has been in in times past for the Blue Devil football team. So so limiting the um, limiting those offensive possessions by getting that yards per carry down, I think, is going to be essential. I, I I can't believe this. This is totally unfair. Why did you go to Sam first? Because I was going to say I have two keys to the game. My first key is let's not give up a ton of yards rushing to Miami. And my second key is let's get the turnover margin back in our advantage because we've been blowing that lately. And Sam just said both of them. This is no fair. <laughs> uh, Jason, I, I don't know what to tell you, man. We Great minds think alike, which means that the, which means the ungreat minds must also think alike. <laughs> so uh, that, the only thing I'll add, just to expand a little bit on what Sam was talking about, um, I went ahead and, and checked on it. Miami averages 185 yards rushing per game, which is a pretty big number. That means, I mean, this is a team that they get almost as many rushing yards as they do passing yards um, in a given game. Um, uh, you know, pretty close in those numbers, but 185 yards on the ground per game says to me that this is a team that tries to run the ball a lot. In Travis Homer and DJ Dallas, they have two guys. They're sort of the, the running back combo, the, the tandem back there. Those two guys both average more than five yards per carry, and they get a lot of carries. Um, I, I, I clearly think the story of this game is going to be the, the rushing attacks. Um, and, you know, can Duke sustain enough of a rushing attack so that, so that we're not only relying on Daniel Jones's arm and can we stop Miami from getting lots of yards on first down, second down being in third and short, second and short, which are favorable situations for, for an offense. Um, uh, you know, it, if it's another game, if we give up 200 plus yards on the ground and if we can't even run, if we don't run for a hundred or so, then, then I think we all know what's going to happen in this game. Um, and, and it's not going to be good. You know, you the guys. One thing, okay. the one thing that, that that's sort of keeping me off the ledge, I guess, here is that Duke does still have two very winnable games against North Carolina and Wake Forest coming up that hopefully will cement their ability to go to a bowl game again. But man, I would really like for them to to steal a win against a good team. Although, you know, looking back at the schedule of wins. Duke's victory against Northwestern early in the season is looking better and better every week. They knocked off Wisconsin this weekend. So, Northwestern's uh, probably going to play for the Big Ten title. 
Northwestern looks like they're the best team in their division. They're probably going to play for the Big Ten title. And, and Duke's by the way, already got a victory against them. What a great season. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and by the way, Army, I think it's 5-2 and two I saw, or 6-2. and two. I mean, Army looks pretty good as well. So, yeah. Um, I, I'm with you. I don't, I don't want to go to a bowl at six. I mean, we'll go to a bowl at six and six. Heck we'll go to a bowl at five and seven. I like going to bowl games. It's important to the program, but I would really love to get seven or eight wins on this season. I think it's still possible. It's still out there because Wake and UNC are both pretty darn bad teams, but we've got to play better than we have the past, you know, couple weeks. Getting well, all the way to eight is going to be a challenge because that requires winning either at Miami or at Clemson. And, well, uh, I, I'm just, I'm not sure that's going, I, I know Duke's not going to win at Clemson. Yeah. Clemson still Clemson in, in spite of, of some of their, um, you know, they're not being as quite as good as, as they were last year. Although they're shellacking a Florida state this weekend would, would say otherwise, I, I think Clemson might, uh, you know, might be more beatable. I'm not sure, but they're not losing to us at home. No, so, no, they're not. And, and by the way, I, I know Donald wants to jump in on Miami. I'll go so far as to say I don't want Duke to beat Clemson because it's good for the conference for Clemson to play for the national title. And if we beat them, they will not. Nah, forget that. I'd rather. <laughs> that. Yeah. I, I, I don't care. I don't care. So while you guys are, are a little bit down about our chances against Miami, let me tell you why it is possible that we can steal a win in the 305 this weekend. Miami's problem the last two weeks has centered around two really big things for them. One, it's been their offense with their passing, especially they have been going back and forth between Malik Rozier and, uh, and Perry as their quarterback. And they really don't know who their quarterback is. Both of them have not played well. Um, there it has divided really the fan base over who should be playing over the other. Uh, last week it was Rozier and he did not do well. The week before Perry, Perry got replaced by Rozier early on in that game and they still lost against Virginia. So, that is one area of note. If if our guys can force a couple of turnovers, that's really going to dive into the momentum. On their defense, their defense has been letting people just march down the field every single possession. And it is not something where it's, you know, it's big plays or anything, but it's kind of the time that similar uh, problems we've had over the last couple of weeks on defense. When we need a bit, when they need a big play, they don't get it. And the one thing that has really anchored them and their momentum has been the big play on offense, long passes downfield, long runs with Travis Homer, DJ Dallas. But on defense, obviously, it's getting that turnover chain. That is their momentum. That's the only momentum that they have. And they have not been getting the ball. Uh, uh, they have not been turn- getting turnovers the last couple of weeks. That has really dejected them. So what does that mean? If we can limit the big play, I know that's something that we talk about every week with this defense, but with our defense, you know, that is really the key. If we can limit the big play, um, then they're going to be punting the ball a lot. And that's really going to get into their momentum and really get at them, eat at them. On offense, if we can take care of the football and march down the field, score points when we have opportunities to in the red zone, they are going to not be able to handle that. And that is where they have really fallen apart because they are also not a very disciplined football team when the chips are down. So if we can get them on their heels, we have a really good chance to win this football game. And even though it's in Saturday night, uh, in the lights in Miami, it's their homecoming. All of those may be stacked against Duke, but those two key stats, if we can win those, we're winning this football game. 
Donald, I love your optimism. I, I <laughs> we we shall see. As as you pointed out, under the lights, Miami feels like they are they're letting a good season slip away from them, and I, I think it's going to be tough for both teams. But but at least Miami has that home field advantage. Although we know that Duke has been has been slightly better on the road this year than they have been at home. So I'm looking forward to it. But but I'm not as hopeful maybe as I as I would have been a few weeks ago about Duke's chances uh, down in Florida. Today's episode is brought to you by the wonderful law firm of Bird Campbell, PA. With offices in Texas and Florida, this Duke-centric firm is here to handle all of your business law needs. Not only that, they're proud alums of the Duke University we all love. If you or a loved one are in need of their services, reach out to them at birdcampbell.com, and we thank them for their continued support of the DBR podcast. All right, guys, we're done with football, and we're going to dive back into basketball. It's our first Player of the Week awards of the 2018-2019 season. So, Jason, since I let Sam talk about football and he took all your stuff, you get the first crack at Player of the Week. RJ Barrett, it'll be my first one. It won't be my last one. I am so impressed. You know, we mentioned it when we talked about it. His ability to score in effortless kind of ways. Uh, I I talked about how his three-point shot is way improved from what we thought it was going to be. He hit the boards really, really well. Um, RJ Barrett uh, and, and, and defense. He was also excellent on defense. Uh, There's a reason this kid is going to be the number one pick in the NBA draft. I've, I've talked about it for a while. I'm a huge RJ Barrett fan. I can't wait to see him play real games. He is my college basketball player of the week. Sam? The exhibition games don't count, so I don't think this one does either. Marquise Bolden, one for two from three. I never thought that I was going to be talking about Marquise Bolden making threes in a game. Thank you again to Jason for mentioning it up front when we talked about that. So my player of the week this week is Marquise Bolden, one for two from three. Let it fly, big fella. And my player of the week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree with Jason. Uh, RJ Barrett, 55 points over those two games. He looks like every bit like the preseason first-team All-American that he is. He's going to be a problem for teams all along. And really, honestly, this is one of those things where every week I feel like we are going to have issues deciding between R.J. Barrett and Zion Williamson for most of these weeks. Uh, So for now, uh, I'm just going to give it to R.J. with all apologies to everyone else on the team, but he's my player of the week. And now we're down to parting shots, and I will start with Sam. Well, it is currently, as we speak, Game 5 of the World Series. It is the bottom of the fifth inning. Clayton Kershaw and David Price are both still in this game, um, and I hope that folks are enjoying the World Series because it's a great time, even if your team isn't playing in it. So uh, by at the time of this recording, the, the Dodgers are still alive, but the Red Sox are up 3-1. I've been loving it. Hope other people have, too. Um, don't even especially care for either of these teams. And finally, I'll say thank you to Fox for, even though they subject us to Joe Buck, um, for not taking the Boston versus LA rivalry and running with lots and lots of old clips of the Lakers and Celtics from the eighties. I very much appreciate that. You must have not seen the intro before tonight's game because that's exactly what they did. 
Oh, uh, did they? Well, they did. It was an intro with uh, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird talking about Boston and LA and really talking about the Celtics and the Lakers. But I take yeah. it back. I take it back. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry to disappoint you. Also, it's funny. Um, basically, half of the Red Sox are former Tigers. So you would think that I'd be rooting for the Red Sox, but nah, I'm just... I'm just watching this game, but happy for those former uh, Dumbo, uh, Dave Dombrowski uh, Tigers that are now on the Red Sox that seem to be close to that title. Jason, your parting shot. So I want to talk about a couple of preseason things. First of all, I saw a wonderful, really cool statistic the other day. Um, the AP released their preseason poll. And um, uh, for some reason, the NCAA went back and looked at the past 20 years from 1999-2002 to this year, um, 20 years of preseason polls, and they said, gosh, there's only one team that has been in the preseason top 20, top 25 every single year for those 20 years. And gentlemen, I'm going to give you two guesses, and the first one doesn't count. That's right. The Duke Blue Devils are the only team to have been ranked in every single AP preseason poll for the past 20 years. And the craziest number of all, do you know what our average ranking was in each of those polls? Six. No, but I'm sure you're going to tell us. What? Six? Six is darn close. 5.5. So basically, over the past 20 years, you can book Duke to be ranked in the top six every single year. That is ridiculous. That is crazy. That is really cool. By the way, Kansas and Kentucky have been in 19 of the past 20 top 25s, and North Carolina and Michigan State have each been in 18 of them. But no one goes 20 for 20 like the Duke Blue Devils. And then the other preseason thing I wanted to mention, the ACC at their Operation Basketball this past week um, did their preseason media polls, and they came back with their all-ACC team, their player of the year, their freshman of the year, all those kind of different things. Uh, R.J. Barrett, by the way, landed on the first team all preseason all-ACC. Zion Williamson, by three votes, so close, came in on the second team. Um, and in the preseason player of the year voting, R.J. Barrett and Zion Williamson finished second and third to Luke May of North Carolina. Um, May number one, Barrett second, Zion Williamson third. But I, I wanted to add one somewhat amusing thing. I think it is really sweet. I think it is really nice of the ACC to give a player of the year vote to Jalen Horde's mother. Jalen Horde, have you guys heard of him? I have not. Jalen Horde is a freshman. He's from France. Um, he's originally from France. I think he played his basketball in, um, in, in the state of North Carolina last year. And he's going to Wake Forest. And he's a really good recruit for Wake Forest. This is a guy who a lot of people say is one of the top 30 or so kids coming into college basketball. But Jalen Horde got one vote for ACC Player of the Year, preseason Player of the Year. I, I, I want to repeat that. Jalen Horde, who is a freshman, playing for Wake Forest, someone actually thought that he is going to be the ACC Player of the Year. That's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard in my life. Wake Forest is probably going to come close to winning zero ACC games. Well, actually, Pitt. Pitt is terrible. Wake is going to win maybe two or three ACC games this year. If, if Wake wins six ACC games, it'll be stunning. It'll be shocking. There is no way this Jalen Horde kid is going to be the ACC Player of the Year, and someone voted for him for Preseason Player of the Year. It shows you what a joke the Preseason Player of the Year balloting is, 
And again, I think it must have been the fact that the ACC gave Jalen Horde's mother a ballot or something like that, because I can't think that anyone who has a brain would pick a Wake Forest freshman to be the ACC preseason player of the year. Uh, folks, we'll be taking suggestions for how to punish Jason if Jalen Horde wins ACC Player of the Year. <laughs> so please, please submit those. Please submit those, of course, to dbrpodcast at gmail.com. I will be following up personally. Actually, actually, I thought you were going to say we'll be taking suggestions for how to punish Jason when Jalen Horde goes off for 36 as Wake upsets Duke. But that's not going to happen. We'll, we'll, happen. We'll, we'll get there when the time comes. Yeah, Don't worry. We'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Um, so my parting shot is far be it from me to be the, 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 the resident uh, native of Michigan, far be it from me to express some uh, remorse for something that happened to a Cleveland Cavalier. But here I am, uh, Teron Liu, the head coach, or I should say former head coach, because he was fired today after going 0 for 6 uh, in the first six games of the season. Uh, with the Cleveland Cavaliers. That is, yes, ladies and gentlemen, the Cleveland Cavaliers that were uh, four months ago in the NBA Finals. They also had a guy named LeBron James, who apparently is pretty good. Uh, They've been to three, neither straight, of those. three straight NBA Finals. Three straight Finals, and he got fired. Uh, that would be four straight Finals. He was part of three of them, yes, but there was four straight Finals right. uh, with the Cavaliers. But yeah, Life comes at you pretty fast, and I'm not sure what the Cavaliers organization and Dan Gilbert expected from the Cavaliers after LeBron left, uh, but, you know, 0-6 should have been high on that list, um, and <laughs> for some reason, it was not, and now Larry Drew is going to be the interim head coach. Yes, Larry Drew, the father of the former UNC guard, um, but... I, I I really just feel bad for Teron Lou because he was in a no-win situation, uh, turned it into a winning one. He act, he got himself a ring, um, and you can say whatever you want about LeBron running the team or being the general manager, but Teron Lou was still the coach. And for that to happen, such a you know fall from grace for him, uh, and really just being made to be the scapegoat of a team that was completely decimated by losing one guy. Um, I, I think that's kind of disingenuous for for him to be cut so early um after what he has given that franchise so sorry to run lou but uh if you want to be an assistant um for the time being i'm pretty sure Dwayne casey will take you on his staff and you can beat the hell out of the cavaliers four times a year that's going to be great nice revenge so the Cavs, the Cavs had lebron and now they don't what like th- this is really silly i i you either wanted him or you didn't, right? Right, exactly. And, and it's it's like it this happened again, you know, right? Like they had they had LeBron one time, they lost him, and then they started firing everybody because it was there is clearly their fault that they weren't good. What it really was, hey, you lost one arguably the greatest player of all time, and that Donald, does something to Donald, the franchise. Donald, the greatest player of all time. Ooh, ooh, we don't have time for that okay. debate. Yeah, this is not time for the debate. Wait, wait, I've got a question. I've got a serious question. What 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 is Cleveland? What were they trying to do this year? Are, does Cleveland think that they're going to be good this year? Did they expect Tyron Lue to try to win? Because this is the NBA. And if you're going to be mediocre to bad, and Cleveland was going to be at least mediocre to bad, you need to be really bad. You need to suck. You need to lose as many games as possible so you can get a high draft pick and draft someone like, I don't know, LeBron James. 
what uh, they're upset at Teron Lou for going Owen six. I'm a Hawks fan. The Atlanta Hawks, the Hawks last I checked, I think were two and two and three. I think they are two and two, two and three, something like that. I'm furious at them for winning those games. What are they doing? Winning games, lose, 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 lose. Cleveland should be thrilled that Teron Lou is losing games. That should be his job. His job description should say lose as many games as possible so we can get high draft picks. Cause that's the only way you're going to get better. Dan Gilbert, it's not like you're going to lure some fabulous free agent to Cleveland. Everyone hates you because you're a jerk. So you guys got to lose games. That's the only way that works. Look at the Boston Celtics, full of guys that they drafted. Look at the Philadelphia 76ers, full of guys that they drafted when they sucked. Uh, that's, that's the way to make it happen. Why are they upset at him for losing? Uh, because apparently they are, a, wor- they are a, a world-class franchise that needs to be expecting nothing but the best. And I thought they were the best at being terrible. Um, but Teron Lou, uh, this next Bud Light's for you, Bud. Um, I, hey, I I hope I hope that um, Dan Gilbert's uh, letter to Teron Lou firing him was written in Comic Sans. It probably wasn't because uh, he's hired people now, and those people don't let him near computers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and that's going to do it, everybody, uh, for now. A reminder for you folks out there, a, a quick note. Our next episode is going to be our annual predictions episode, and we're also going to preview the opening game of college basketball against Kentucky. So that's going to come to you sometime this week, so you have plenty of time to digest it before November 6th. But for now, that's going to do it for this episode of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, Bert Campbell and Dominate Test Prep. My thanks to my co-hosts, Sam and Jason. And most importantly, to all of you out there listening, thank you so much for your support. We'll be back for you in a few days. But for now, I'll let the Duke band take us home.